0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Greg Borud, co-founder and CEO of Seismic Games. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. How are you? Doing well. Excellent. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Awesome. Doing yeah. well.
0: We are recording this uh, on the Friday leading up to E3, so lots of uh, big stuff coming up in the gaming world.
1: There is. It's definitely not boring around here at all. So uh, a lot of uh, it's a it's a hive of activity every day. Good. So uh, glad to hear it. Yeah. So glad you could come here.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to start off uh, because and talk about the fact that you've worked on some absolutely huge titles in your career, things like Star Wars Battlefront, Mercenaries. But I got to say, the one that caught my eye when reading your bio was one of my childhood favorites, Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Excellent. We're going the PC way back machine. time machine. That's right. <laughs> So uh, tell us about that and your early experiences. Oh, my God. At Activision. <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, that was an incredible uh, an incredible project and an interesting project. Really one of the first really big games that I, I worked on uh, at Activision. Uh, it was really weird. When I got hired at Activision in 95, the, the industry was just starting to take off. MechWarrior 2 was just about to launch. And Activision decided, well, we need producers. We need people to like kind of manage these projects. And I'd been coming, I came from the film and TV world and theater world, uh, but was really passionate about games and producing. So I came into Activision during this time where just like a lot of activity was going on. And I'd done a small game Commodore 64 action pack uh, working, you know, kind of leading the test, you know, on that. And it was like, okay, so now I'm moving into my first producer role. And I remember they told me that said, you're going to work. We're moving on this project, Planetfall 3D which was like one of the great projects being developed at Activision at the time. Everyone wanted on that project. I'm literally back boxing up my stuff to go to move the planet fall team. I'm going to be working on 3d cutting edge graphics, this amazing adventure game. And I'm moving from one hole to the next. And then the, the phone call comes down. It's like, ah, there's been a change. You're going to Muppet treasure Island. <laughs> I'm like, ah, the Muppet treasure Island on the other hand was Muppets and it was video streaming video. So it's full motion video And it had some problems, you know, and there were, uh, you know, it was a fairly large team. So it wasn't like trying to figure out what it wanted to be. Um, But it was, I loved Muppets. So going in was great for me because I was a huge fan. And it was an opportunity for me to move in into a team that had a ton of talent, like great direction, great engineers, great art, uh, and, and had the Muppets, you know, all this stuff. Uh, and just find a way to kind of, you know, coalesce that into a production team and get that thing, that thing launched. And Planetfall in the meantime, went on into this long process, ended up getting canceled and killed down the road.
0: So it worked out for you. It worked
1: out perfectly for me because it got me this product and it was out and then kind of got my, my feet under me in terms of what it meant to be a producer making video games, which then, you know, led to my, to, to my next game. So yeah, that one's near and dear to my heart. And, uh, it's funny, it doesn't get brought up much, but it was brought up uh, like probably eight or so years ago. I was on a tour in Europe and someone came up to me and said, I just want you to know Muppet Treasure Island continues to sell even to this day.
0: Wow. Hey, <laughs> I know, know? I'm serious, that's phenomenal. It's cool.
1: I, do. I, I should bring that one out again yeah. and try it with my kids and see if they'd like it. <laughs> sure, they, I, I'm not sure up. it's piqued their interest as much as, you know, Fortnite. Sure. How <laughs> are your kids? They're 9 and 10. Okay, and what are they playing? uh big minecraft you know all, you know all the time minecraft roblox uh is a popular one for them it's just miscellaneous i try to keep i like i'm actually not letting them play fortnite you know all the other kids at school are playing fortnite i'm kind of keeping them away from fortnite for right now although you know i do play it so <laughs> but uh but uh yeah i'd say we're probably mostly a minecraft family Huge Sky, we have so many Skylanders toys, it's ridiculous. I mean, so if there's a market there for Skylanders toys that we could be, it's like, if it's like Beanie Babies, we could be rich, right, right? But uh, yeah, that kind of stuff.
0: So what initially attracted you to the gaming industry from a background in film and TV?
1: Well, you know, I was always interested in producing. I always wanted to create, you know, entertainment, you know, and that started with theater, uh, just doing community stuff and producing theater wherever I could. And I realized, you know, just couldn't really make money producing theater. So I started looking at film and television and finding a way to kind of break into the industry here. At the same time, I was a passionate gamer. You know, I was really interested in in, uh, in making games and like I did some basic coding, uh, just my free time. And the industry was just starting to evolve. This is before PlayStation came out, before the Sega Saturn came out. So there was a passion there for wanting to create entertainment. there was a passion for video games, and there was a need for people to start to produce these 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 games as the projects went beyond three or four people making a game to teams of 20 or thirty, which then eventually led to teams of two or three hundred, you know so a lot of it was just my passion and kind of having a, a pretty good skill set and and honestly right place, right time, it seems like
0: how was your gaming experience growing up what did you play when you were the age
1: well of yeah everything i mean I, I grew up you know as a kid in the early 80s like arcades you know i, I remember the first donkey kong i remember you know when that came out and um, my brother and i hitting up you know heading down the 7-eleven and i mean it's all that stuff you'd see at any 80s nostalgia nonsense that was that was us right so uh you know arcades for sure Uh, Atari 2600, absolutely You know, we always wanted to get an Intellivision Or a ColecoVision, never had enough money to get that So we'd go over to friends' houses So that was all a part of it But then I think, for me, gaming really started taking off When I started getting into PC games You know, a lot of the, the, whether it's early adventure games Or some of the early shooters Like uh, Dark Knight Those are all games, Doom, you know, all those uh, Duke Nukem, those are all games That really kind of drew me uh, drew me in in the, the late 80s and then really early 90s, I would say. So i playing a little bit of everything, a little bit of anything. Um, I was more of a Sega person than a Nintendo person. You know, I think maybe uh, I know people fall into both camps. I was more in the Sega. there's a lot of Sega sports stuff back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my in- initial interest. And then got this job at Activision in 95. Just kind of a fluke thing, you know. I... Uh, I'd been at CES because there was this is all pre E3, and so I'd gone to CES, where kind of where games were shown at the time. And I remember I I had an idea about building a game company, totally separate to building games. And I had a resume with me. I was like, this is I was you know young early 20s trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember dropping a resume in an Activision. Activision had a booth there. I had like a fishbowl and I just dropped my resume in there. I'd forgotten about it. And six months later, I just got a call out of the blue like, hey, we saw your resume. Be interested in talking with us? And I was like, absolutely, 100%. So um, it was kind of this weird, serendipitous thing that happened and, you know, went from there. There we go. And after
0: that, you caught the entrepreneurial bug and you launched Pandemic Studios.
1: Yeah, you know, look, I think anyone in games, especially at Activision, had a certain amount of entrepreneurial spirit to them. You know, and I think the way Bobby Kodak had set up the company... Um, you know, we were all our own teams. You know, we were building our own teams and our own products, and you know, what you did with those, you either rise or you failed with the successes of your products. And so, I think everyone at the time was was fairly entrepreneurial, um, but all the product development was done internally. So, Activision had about three or four hundred developers. It was the MechWarrior Team Two team that became the i seventy six team? There was Spycraft. There was uh, the Muppet team, and then we we started the Dark Rain team. Uh, There was the Battlezone team. So there was all these different teams. And they kind of ran as their own little, almost like their own small businesses. And then I remember they did a deal with id, uh, an external deal. I think it was around to do Quake. Mitch Lasky kind of came in and started building these external, like doing these external deals. And you could just feel the wind like, oh, no, they're going to start doing all these deals externally. You know, it's so much better to work with an id and building a Quake rather than having three or 400 internal developers all staring at you going, well, what should we do next? So the id deal happened, and then there were a number of other external deals starting to happen. You could see the tide starting to turn from internal to more external products. So Josh and Andrew, a couple of my partners from Pandemic, uh, Andrew ran the Battlezone team, and Josh was my partner on the Dark Rain team, started talking about you know spinning out and uh, taking our teams with us And so I hopped on with those two to start Pandemic. And uh, And Activision actually invested. They did, yeah. I mean, it was a very small investment. It was really, I mean, they basically gave us our, let us take our machines. And um, I don't even know if they let us keep our desks. But they definitely let us keep our machines. They gave us, you know, $100,000 or something like that just to kind of help kind of pay the bills initially. The most important thing, though, is they let us develop our first two products, which was Dark Rain 2 and Battlezone 2. So they were externally developed by us, but for them as the publisher, uh, which was, you know, did two things. One, it got us two games out of the gate that we can start working on and we could scale up.
0: Instant credibility.
1: Instant credibility. And then more importantly, it also gave us two games. You know, and I think a lot of companies starting out, start out as just a one game company. And I think one of the benefits that we had at Seismic or at Pandemic rather, and something that we've also tried to do it here at Seismic, is having multiple products in development is just it there's something about developing a company that has that kind of flexibility and that freedom and i think that set us up at pandemic is not just a one game company but it's a multiple game company and that served us well you know long term so uh yeah so we started with 13 people at pandemic and and just you know with dark rain 2 and, and battle zone 2 and and uh went from there
0: what was the hardest part about being a first-time founder
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the hardest part would be. There's always the kind of nervousness that you have of hiring all these people and are you going to pay the bills and is this going to, what are you going to do after and how are you going to transition this? And oh, geez, payroll is coming up on Friday and do we have enough money in the bank and all that? There's all those kind of things. But also when you're in the mid 20s, you don't really care all that much. You know what I mean? So I think that those things were really important. But there was also just kind of a carefree attitude of like, ah, we'll just figure it out. You know, I mean, like none of us had, um, you know, crazy lifestyles that we couldn't like, ah, if we don't get paid. Now, I mean, we kept we ran a very, very smart business. And I think that's always been something that's been important to us is that we don't, you know, we we the, the business by its nature has a certain element of risk to it. But but we do fair, play fairly conservatively within that risky business. There were just kind of those, you know, are we hiring the right people? Are we getting the right people in here? I think really transitioning on to the next games was the big one. Getting Dark Rain 2 and Battlezone 2 done, we knew what we were doing there. Although the move to 3D, we were 2D games and then moving like Dark Rain from 2D to 3D was a big kind of question mark. that we was a It was a challenging one to, to take on moving, thinking about 3D RTS. So there was those kind of things. But beyond that, is the transition really onto next projects, and where where do we go as a company beyond what we're currently doing?
0: Sure, overcoming both technical challenges and moving into creative challenges. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, so you know, and and honestly, moving platforms. So mm-hmm. the Dark Rain Two and Battlezone Two were were PC products, but when most people think of Pandemic Studios, they think of it as a console mm-hmm. shop. Uh, you know, Battlezone or B- Battlefront rather, Star so Battlefront, Mercenaries, Destroy All Humans, all those games are all console games. Um, and so right around that time, we also made the transition from being a PC shop to being a console shop. Yeah. That was pretty core to, I guess, the way the, the, the thinking of how we were going to constantly be evolving the company. So not only just the kind of games we made, which were RTS games going into action uh, games, but then also going from PC games to, to console games.
0: How do you think about that today, especially for seismic? You're doing oh. PC games, you're doing mobile games, you're doing yeah, like console games.
1: That that is so much a part of our DNA. And I think so there are a couple of things that are born out of the idea of pandemic, which I think still holds true today with seismic, which is number one, having multiple products, and number two, don't getting locked down on a platform because those things are going to change, you know, and even where we are now, we started seismic eight years ago. And the platforms that we're developing on now didn't even really, some of them didn't even exist just eight years ago, right? So you can't, so to try to predict out eight years where we're going to be or what we're going to be doing is almost impossible to do. But that's also part of the fun of the industry is uh, is being able to evolve, being able to kind of change. We don't want to swing with the wind. You know, we don't want to just go wherever the the new, new thing is. But we want to have a really smart, methodical approach about evolving what we're doing, taking it to the next level and evolving our skill set and our passions with where the industry is is going. Uh, and that's why it's fun to even see, you know, PC gaming is still a very viable platform. And console games where it looked like eh, maybe they might go away is still, you know, an absolute viable platform. So uh, we still have our tendrils into both of those. Uh, our clear focus right now is mostly on mobile um, but we're also doing stuff with uh, set-top box streaming games. We're doing stuff with location-based, uh, obviously doing VR. So there's a number of other things that we're... And that's, that's part of what we're excited about is, is just the, the breadth of the platforms and the opportunities out there right now. Very
0: cool. So tell us a little bit more about some of the projects that you have in development.
1: It's been a busy couple of years, honestly. So we've got five games in development right now. Uh, we have launched two of them in the last... You know, two, three months, we have another one launching this month. So uh, it's been all of this work kind of underground leading up to this this cadence of releases. So two, three, three months ago now, I guess, um, in March, we launched uh, Marvel Strike Force, which was the first of this new batch and of uh, products were in development. Incredibly excited about this game. Um, obviously an amazing IP, uh, working with some great partners with Fox Next, Developing what we hope is just, you know, a great, fun character hero collection RPG. Uh, It's been exciting to get out there. It's doing, you know, it's doing very well. Um, The fans seem to like it. And it's honestly the game I'm playing the most myself right now. So it's got me totally addicted to it. I play it every single day, more hours than I probably should. And uh, so something we're really, really incredibly proud of. And those are the kind of games that we love to make. You know, we love to make games that can go fairly mass market that you know have a a core idea there about what the the genre will be but then working with ip that are we're passionate about marvel's been an incredible uh, incredible um, property to work with and then that coupled with the launch of infinity war and the launch of um black panther and you know i mean it's just this regular cadence of new launches we've got uh uh, Deadpool, we just launched. I know we've got something scheduled with Ant Man coming up. You know, it's just Marvel's the gift that keeps on giving oh, when funny. it when it comes to a live operations <laughs> yeah. uh, game. So uh, that was the first one. Uh, that
0: presents a fair share of challenges too, keeping Marvel fans happy, satisfying <clears> the <throat> studio's expectations. How do you yeah, that? yeah, I
1: mean, honestly, it's oppor- we see it as purely opportunity. I mean, it's the best thing that you can do because what it does is it you can look out the year of the cadence of movie launches and it becomes these tent poles that you look to. And then how do we make sure that we're doing the right thing by each one of these, these movies and these new releases, but then in between those, where are some things that we can do on our own to kind of, you know, stretch our, 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 our our muscles a little bit. So um, we actually see it as a huge opportunity. And then Marvel's has been so great when something like black Panther comes out of nowhere. And then now all of a sudden that's, you know, one of the biggest IPs, around it just there's that they've just been done, doing such a great job of expanding that that universe in a in a in an amazing way
0: and are they looking to games to drive certainly attendance in theaters and maybe also Kind of develop the IP and build it out for consumer products. Is this driving the engine for the studio as well? Well, you
1: know, I mean, that's a, that's a question for Marvel, and I would never uh, presume to take credit for, uh, you know, Infinity War's incredible sales. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do think it goes to the way people think about IPs now, and they don't think of them as necessarily standalone. And, you know, we've done a lot, a lot of work with the Star Wars people at Lucas as well, and it's the same sort of philosophy, which is... You know, how does this IP transcend a single event? You know, how does it go and touch all aspects of your life? And uh, I think gaming has become just so much a part of everybody's daily life and in so many different ways. Again, whether it's console or PC or mobile, uh, now VR or AR, how do you pull those kind of experiences and take these great characters in these great worlds and allow you to you know access them in, in new and and in, in unique ways. So I think it's a part of a, an overall plan. Um, and so I, I see ourselves as an extension and an opportunity to extend it for fans. But uh, yeah, it's something we're, we're we we love doing, you cool. know, and, and how and always have. And you're working on another
0: big property with uh, we our are. studio partners. Yeah, it's
1: so awesome. partner we've been relations. working uh, yeah. we've been working with Alcon, uh, uh, the filmmakers behind the Blade Runner, the uh, latest Blade Runner movie. And uh, that's been incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, awesome experience. You know, certainly as fans of, of uh, both the first movie and, and also the, the new movie, um, we've been working on that, the Blade Runner Revelations uh, VR game for a little over a year now, and that just launched um, last month. And that was a great, the, the, again, kind of a perfect opportunity for us, which is... Um, an IP that we're really passionate about and how can we extend this IP in new ways. And for us, it was bridging kind of the, the, the time between the two movies. Um, and then how can we do something new on the gaming side, both technically and uh, from a design perspective that, that, that is exciting to us as game developers. So for us, we saw the opportunity around mobile VR, the idea that we've been doing a lot of really kind of cutting edge graphics on, on mobile games we're in a unique place to take that to, to the mobile VR space. And how can we create what we hope is one of the best examples of a truly immersive, you know, mobile VR experience? We want it to be visually stunning. We want it to be completely immersive. We worked with a group at Hexony uh, to just create a, a, a soundscape that's just a great audio feast. It was the idea of pulling all these things together and creating a, a really compelling narrative package that could sit alongside those two great movies. So we launched that uh, a month ago. We're really proud of of what we've created there. We're excited to see what the potential of where that that world can go. We think that an untethered VR experience is, is core. I know that the, the really high-end systems are going to be going more untethered. In the future, but having that ability right now with the mobile VR uh, is something that we've really focused on, and so yeah, a product that we're excited to have out there. It's a very different product than something like Marvel Strike Force because we get it out there and we launch it, and it is what it is. Whereas Marvel Strike Force, we have a long cadence of releases yeah, yeah, for right yeah years to come. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so with the VR game, how accessible is VR as a platform for gamers, and how do you think about that in the next say three to five years?
1: Well, yeah, I. Yeah. You know, again, it goes back to it's really so hard to predict where these things are are going to go. It's still evolving. You know, I, I really think every single day it's still evolving, and I think it's going to be products like like Blade Runner and and a number of other kind of cutting edge projects that are going to get people with what is their play pattern. I think that's the the main thing that VR is trying to figure out right now is. You know, mobile is really clear. I'm sitting around. I've got some free time. Let me just fire up a game. Consoles, like, let me sit on my couch. I'm going to sit down and play God of War for the next three hours, right? Uh, VR is one of those that hasn't, for me at least, in my daily playing of games, I haven't found that right opportunity of when am I going to sit down and play a, a, a VR game? When am I going to commit to that? It's something I'm honestly seeing with my kids, too, you know, because they... and But it is... They have started coming to me, like, you know, last weekend. It was like, let's play VR, want to play job simulator like okay let's do it but for me as a parent it's like okay let's play job simulator what does that mean i got to fire up the pc i've got to download all the latest drivers i'm sure there's software updates it could take me an hour or two to get vr going for them and i'm this is what i do for a living right Mm -hmm. and that to me is the exciting part of something like mobile vr or getting vr more accessible where my kids say hey we want to play you know we want to play a vr game it's just like okay here go play just as, as simple as a console is as, as simple as a as a as a mobile game is
0: well a number of the console makers are experimenting with vr right playstation's vr experiences uh seem to be gaining some steam
1: yeah they seem to be i think you know but overall vr needs to find like kind of what is its killer app and and, and i think there's some really cool things out there i do think job simulator obviously was 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 one of those um but they haven't really broken out into the to the mainstream yet so I'm curious to see how it goes and how it evolves. I'm very bullish on kind of the immersive experience. I think that that to me is something that VR offers that no one else can offer and they can throw you literally in the middle of something or anything. And that that creates an emotional connection that's better than almost any other gaming experience I have. You know, MMOs start to bring you into that kind of experience um, but you're still looking through a, you know, a 2D screen. So the idea of really being and inhabiting a place to me is the, the opportunity. So it's just a matter of the hardware getting there, the, the, the software getting there, and then the play experience, the audience saying, this is what I want to commit some of my entertainment time to too. So you know, Blade Runner Revelations for us is kind of our first foray into that really immersive experience, that immersive environment. Uh, I think we're we're really excited about where that that will evolve and how that will go through throughout the years. But there's still there's still a lot to figure out on the VR side.
0: So, thinking about all of these major technology changes and platform shifts, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the gaming world over the past 25 years? <laughs>
1: I mean, everything, right? It's gone from nothing to everything, you know? I mean, uh, you know, my wife, I tease her that she's the biggest gamer in our, in our house because she's sitting there playing Candy Crush every night before she goes to bed, you know? Um, it, it's just that gaming has evolved into something that is so ubiquitous and it's, so, uh, it's not the kind of niche geek nerd thing that it was 25 years ago. I think one of the, the most exciting things that I've seen, and, and I'm admittedly probably even late to the party on this, is just the whole eSports movement. And I think someone, as someone kind of growing up in the 80s and early 90s as a gamer, it was hard for me to get eSports. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around watching someone else play a game, right? And yet, you walk around here right now, so it's lunchtime here at Seismic, you'll see almost everybody streaming someone watching someone play right and now admittedly they're probably all 10 years younger than me you know, maybe maybe more but for me it was really hard to wrap my head around watching people play but i started seeing all my employees watching other people play and then i started watching my kids where you know they get up on a saturday morning where i'd go like i'm going to go play my you know combat on atari 2600 They're like, they're loading up YouTube or Twitch or whatever and and watching other people play, getting ideas, and then going playing those games.
0: So, in some ways, you think that streaming and the major online video platforms like YouTube and Twitch have driven the shift towards
1: esports? Oh, 100%. Well, and just changed the way we think about games overall. You know what I mean? So. The, one of the things I love about games is that they are an interactive, it's a two-way street, right? And so I kind of felt like, well, watching someone play games would not be that compelling. But really, I was thinking about it the wrong way. What watching games does is my two-way street with, number one, that streamer, but then giving me ideas on things I might want to try when I want to go play uh, play this game. So it's actually another way of having interactive touch with this kind of immersive experience. Sure. So.
0: A lot of games now
1: aren't as linear as it <clears throat> used to be. Right? Yeah, oh, so, so yeah, yeah. Experimenting
0: That's, and finding new ways to play the game.
1: Absolutely. And there's just no way you can play every iteration. So, you know, like being able to see some of the really fun and interesting things that are out there and then having an opportunity to do that. So the whole idea of watching other people play has been just so eye-opening for me the last five years. And then how that translates into esports to me, is something that is, you know, incredibly exciting. You know, the idea of just gaming culture and gaming as a sport and a gaming as a spectator sport, um, to me, is, is as someone who's made a lot of action games, you know, whether it's Star Wars Battlefront or Mercenaries or, or any of these other games, or even going back to our RTS games like Dark Reign or Battlezone, um, we've always had multiplayer as a part of our most of our experiences. Thinking about those now is something that people might want to watch and then participate in and then compete in as an esport to me is like incredibly incredibly exciting so yeah going back to your question of how have games changed in the last 25 years i mean it's 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 like we've seen out hundreds of years of evolution compacted down into you know a really short time frame which then boggles your mind not it's not only what's changed to now but then trying to predict the next five years or 10 years or 25 years I mean I'm trying to imagine what games will be 25 years from now I mean I just can't I can't even wrap my head around it yeah um, I like your and that's fun
0: I like your point too about the cultural impact that it hasn't just been you know technical changes or uh, creative changes in games but it's actually been a cultural uh, approach that's shifted
1: 100% you know and you see that with you know people's Habits around watching television, which is changing quite a bit. Uh, People's habits around going to movie theaters, which is changing quite a bit. At the same time, this rise of this interactive culture. And I think one of the things that we're excited about is using games as an opportunity to kind of socially bring people together. I'm, I'm, you know, when you look at what people like Niantic have done with Pokemon Go or something, you know, the idea of creating these, you know, or what Blizzard has done with BlizzCon or, you know, these creating these social events that are connectors For people you you know when you used to traditionally think about games it was kind of the loner sitting in the basement whatever right it's not that at all anymore and i think that's one of the things that i'm really excited as i think about the future of games are these kind of social events whether it's everyone going to staples center to see the latest league you know championship or 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 all online watching a a, you know a streamer on twitch um that that kind of cultural piece of it, I think, is something I'm I'm really excited about for the future.
0: Yeah. When it comes to esports, do you think that the franchise systems are going to bring more broader appeal and mass market appeal to some of the big titles?
1: I think so. You know, I, I think you're gonna have you're gonna have some successes there and you're gonna have some failures. It's it's interesting that. I I'm really interested to watch how this thing uh progresses. So I think having franchises and having specific teams is absolutely the right way to go because it, it has that focus uh that I think you need to kind of, you know, channel your energies into something. But there's gonna be a lot of franchises that get developed on games that people just don't care about, you know? Sure. And then, you know, you could spend a fortune trying to nail some ip but then Fortnite just comes out of nowhere and it's like what how did what you know where did that come from Uh, and that's what's so exciting i mean because it didn't come out of anywhere i mean it was nowhere i mean it was a game out last summer and you know and you know what i mean it's just like
0: studio launches this mega successful absolutely and that
1: that's again goes back to something I, i love about the industry is it's about innovation it's about creativity um, there are some norms that are out there, but sometimes it's just about breaking those norms. You know, and when you think about the biggest games out there, PUBG and Fortnite, or even you know uh, League of Legends, I mean, those are really just mods of traditional games. I mean, they're just like a small subset of some other game just gone crazy. Sure. And that's what I, I love about how those things can evolve. you know um, So yeah. one thing that's interesting to me is
0: you, if you look at the franchise system for eSports, there seems to be a divide right now between league and Overwatch, which mm-hmm. are these you know what I, what I would think of as huge titles brought out by very large game studios that are focused around kind of the gamer culture. And then on the other side you have FIFA and you have Madden and these are kind of <laughs> replicating traditional sports. Yeah. Right? and there's interest in both camps, but it seems to me that League and Overwatch have bigger built-in fan bases and larger runways, long term, than say just trying to replicate the traditional sports model on the video
1: game. Yeah, I think, and what those traditional sports models, yeah, I, I think. Look, there are traditional sports models that, though, are in league and that are in. So, in Overwatch, they are drawing upon you know their city affiliation. There is uniforms. There are certain things you know around marketing and you know certain things that they are drawing upon. Um that are kind of firmly rooted in traditional fan, you know basis. But there's also a whole new level of things that are coming that honestly get are probably gonna get fed back into what what traditional sports might even be, you know. um so I think it's an, it's a, it's an evolution of spectators. it's an evolution of participation. It's an appreciation for what these people can do on something that you know that you can go play, you know. Overwatch yourself, but not like those guys can. So, you know, so
0: (laughs) what does the future hold for Seismic Games?
1: Uh, yeah, look, we'll see. It's exciting. I mean, and I think that's what we have come to first and foremost is we love making games, and the people we hire here and the kind of products we work on are games that we want to play ourselves. So, no matter what we do in the future, it's going to be number one, it's going to be making games. Hopefully, it's going to be making some, you know, some innovative games, uh, working with some big brands, but also building some of our own original IPs, uh, working with great partners to, to get them out there. But to say that this is our playbook and we're going to just do this and then we're going to move on to this, and we're going to move on to that, I've learned that you just you can always have an idea of where you'd like to go, but be ready to move at a at a moment's notice, you know, because things are going to change. So. Uh, We've got uh, in addition, we've got a new product that's just about to launch, which is completely different than uh, both our Blade Runner and our uh, and our Strikeforce product. Just a small game, but it's out of a passion for something we're interested in, which is streaming technology. Back to my idea, my thought on the on the VR thing, and I'm setting up for my kids, like uh. I would just love to be able to stream my games, you know, so I just don't have to do these massive downloads and all this kind of stuff. So, we've been toying with streaming technology for a couple of years and we've been working with Sony around streaming video and how can we, you know, get streaming video working really well. And the other thing we're kind of interested in is voice recognition and experimenting with voice recognition. So, we actually have kind of a, a, a really cool project that we're, we're, we've been developing with them, uh, just more of an It started as an experiment. And, uh, and it's with their uh, Jeopardy IP. So it's, you know, Jeopardy game show everybody knows. Uh, everyone knows HQ is out there doing incredibly well on mobile. They came to us and they have, they said, well, we've digitized 30 years of Jeopardy content, but we don't know what to do. Like no one really wants to go back and watch an old episode of Jeopardy. And we said, well, it could be fun to go back and play an old episode of Jeopardy. Uh, and so through streaming tech and through Voice Rec, we've created this new game experience that's going to be on every platform out there. It's going to be on Fire Stick, Chromecast, Apple TV, Xbox, PlayStation. You name the platform, it'll be on If There's a device where you can stream to your television that this this game will be on it. And then you use your phone as kind of your 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 buzzer, your trigger. So three of us can be sitting on the couch playing. Like okay, May thirtieth, you know, two thousand eight. Okay, play the episode and and. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, three of us could be sitting on a couch and the question comes up. Whoever buzzes in first gives the answer, you know, what is the Taj Mahal, you know, and uh, correct or incorrect. And so you're not only playing against yourselves, but you're also playing against the contestants on the screen. So, again, what started as a really cool experiment on, on what we want to learn about streaming tech and about voice recognition it has turned into this actually really compelling, awesome uh, experience So that's kind of that talking to something now for something completely different. That's kind of the next thing we have coming out and literally right, right now. I mean, we're just about to launch it. So, yeah, what
0: a cool way to reinvigorate an old IP.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it goes to what we love, which is you know working with IP, working on new tech, um, and finding new ways and creating new kind of social gaming experiences. Yeah. So, uh, so that one's next, and we have two other products that we're really excited to announce, but we're not ready to announce yet. And again, back to just one is more of our traditional mobile kind of game, but it could be very, very big. And another one is completely different around location based that we're we're really excited to talk about. So. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, so some really exciting, oh yeah, so yeah, we've got some, uh, I'd put our slate of games up against anyone out there. It's a really, really amazing slate and we're working with great partners and we've got great people here working on all these products for us.
0: Awesome. You mentioned the voice recognition as part of this upcoming Jeopardy! product uh, release it seems to be really having a moment right now that the voice can potentially become the next operating system for how we look for information or interact with one another. How do you think that plays into the gaming space? Yeah.
1: You know, and, and honestly we explored it a bit with our Blade Runner uh, mobile VR experience as well. And, and we couldn't quite get it ready for prime time for that one. But we like the idea of, especially as you try to go more to immersion, if you can take those layers of interactivity uh, uh, that like artificial, whether it's a mouse or a controller or a keyboard out as much as possible and really immerse yourself in the experience we feel like that's better so the idea of a potential mobile vr experience where you don't have to use a controller and you can just you know give verbal commands you can use a controller in case you don't want to be talking out loud but you know but there is that ability to just completely immerse yourself in that in the environment is really intriguing to us so we've done some experiments um with that in 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 blade runner and that has evolved now into what we're doing in jeopardy so Um, It's not going to be the right thing for all games, but we think that in certain experiences and in certain immersive experiences specifically, voice recognition can be a really, really cool addition to it.
0: If you were starting a business in the gaming space or the digital media space today more broadly, taking what you've learned, say, over the past eight years at Seismic, what would you do? Uh,
1: That's a good question. What would I do? Number one, I would get together with a team and be very focused on getting a product out there. You know, and I would partner with people who have the skills that I don't have. You know, um, I would get you know work with great engineers, I'd work with great artists, great creators, and get that nucleus of a team together. I mean, we're very much a team culture here, and um, all of our people are you know um, incredible contributors to that product. So the first thing I would do is I would try to find like-minded people that had a passion like I you know like I do, and. Uh, really be focused on launching something, very singularly focused on on shipping a product. We've had the benefit over the years to be able to work with great partners. Um, so we do have those that kind of unique opportunity to have products brought to us uh, that are really exciting. But if I'm just starting out, yeah, I would, I would look at the great thing about games now is you can build and launch and have a successful product, have a PUBG out there with a small group of people, you know, um, but I would, I would build something and I would launch it and aim for success. But if it's not, at least you're going to learn something and then learn something from that and go do it again and go do it again. And just keep evolving that, that experience, evolving those people you're working with and, uh, you know, do the best you can, you know, strive for, strive for excellence in everything you do. Um, but, um, you know, be, be. Be smart about it. You might not nail it on your first one. You know, you might not. You might not have your Muppet Treasure Island right out of the gate, right? <laughs> you know, but you know, but that was it for me. I yeah. learned a lot through Muppet Treasure Island, um, and it wasn't a crazy success. You know, it, it did fine. You know, uh, but that informed things that I did in Dark Rain, and Dark Rain did really well, and that informed things that we did in Dark Rain. You know, too, and then that informed things we did on Battlefront, things we informed we did on Mercenaries, and the people I'm working you know. with today are the same guys I worked with 25 years ago on Dark Rain. Amazing. We've been working together for, for this entire time. Yeah. And I think having that group of people together that you trust, that you know each other's strengths and weaknesses is pretty core.
0: Great. Where can people find out more about you and more about Seismic Games?
1: Well, you can go to www.seismicgames.com. Uh, I'm sure we've got a Twitter feed. I'm sure we've got a Facebook page. You can check all that out. And, uh, yeah, look for new our new stuff coming up. Certainly uh, look for Jeopardy Play Show, which will be out there on hopefully just about every device known to man uh, uh, in in the next couple of weeks. And uh, love to have you play Marvel Strike Force. It's a game we're incredibly proud of. And if you have a Daydream device or the new Lenovo Mirage Solo device, please check out Blade Runner Revelations. I think that it's, again, a product that we're really, really proud of.
0: Greg, thank you again. This has been incredibly insightful into your career from producer to, you know, uh, creative and executive working on games, creating, you know, these new experiences leveraging technology and what's happening in the gaming industry and just get your perspective has been phenomenal so appreciate you coming on awesome
1: thanks so much for coming by appreciate it
0: thanks for tuning in i'm james creech and this has been another edition of all things video if you like what you hear we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes see you next time